Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. It's Madam Adams. Cindy Adams from the New York Post. You better read me Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I've been in the Post since... Thomas Jefferson's day, maybe even before him. And I am now here on the glorious WABC every Sunday from 1 to 2. And at the moment, I have been noticing that everybody is walking around, everybody except me, is walking around with a tattoo. They've got them a lot on their chests. It's like tit for tat, if you'll pardon the expression. There was a a picture of Sylvester Stallone recently because he's been getting a divorce and it showed him with tattoos all up and down his arm. I'm not such a fond, fond of it. I'm not so fond of it, but I've done a survey and I've been finding out everybody's got this stuff. Katy Perry's gills are alive with the sound of messages. A strawberries at an ankle. Jesus is on her wrist. A bicep in Sanskrit reads, go with the flow. It's so many tattoos that she's insulated against everything but about failure. Scarlett Johansson reportedly has nine. Her back alone could be a bestseller. Angelina Jolie had Billy Bob. It was on her arm and it got undid when she undid the husband at the time, Billy Bob Thornton. Only lawyers know what she did with Brad. Peanuts cartoon character Woodstock is on Whoopi's chest, the left side. On her right side, who knows? I know it's not politics. Bill Murray. A duck is on his left shoulder. How this helps him, who knows? One John Mellencamp, one arm features Woody Woodpecker. Mark Wahlberg's body has a rosary. John Bon Jovi, he flashes a longhorn skull someplace. Who knows where? He hasn't let me see it. Juliette Lewis, a bunny inside her left wrist. Who knows why? Then there's pink. Pink has an oriental dragon somewhere. A cat cartoon is on her stomach. A barcode is below her hairline. Who would have a barcode? A frog on her left foot and a red star on her hand. Her brother's army dog tag is on the left foot. She's protected from everything except a naked photo. Rihanna stars down her back. Kaya Gerber, she has about 10. Inside her left wrist is black flowers. Kylie Jenner, butterflies. I'm not asking exactly where they fly. Hilary Duff, some old-time Betty Davis quote is someplace. It better be a short quote. Dan Aykroyd, he inked 
mishmash from the Bible. I do not mean that the Bible is mishmash, but he took a little phrase here, a little quote there. Adam Levine's chest full includes the word California. If he should ever re relocate to a place like Okavango Delta Botswana, he's got, he's got a problem. People magazine reported he has 30. There are know-it-alls who supposedly know it all and claim Ariana Grande is full of it or them. Emma Watson right arm has times up kylie jenner a butterfly kendall jenner a lip hillary duff a betty davis quote on an arm which quote what arm who knows lucky i know even this must be they think tats entertainment lily collins a naked woman on a surprise surprise lily Selena Gomez, a G on her neck for Sister Gracie. Megan Fox does Shakespeare, to be or not to be, upper spine. Jessica Alba, a lotus. Katy Perry, go with the flow along her bicep. David Beckham does Chinese symbols. I don't know why. Maybe it's his delivery order from Uber Eats. Rihanna, fish and birds on the legs. Leah Michelle, she has a coffee cup on one finger. It's a small cup, not enough room for a mug. Justin Bieber's tatted all over. Somewhere, Kelly Osborne sports solidarity, the word solidarity. The symbol of unity on Gaga's shoulder is for sexual assault survivors. And Drew Barrymore's daughter's name is on her arm. Miley Cyrus's arm advertises whatever is Vegemite. Wiz Khalifa, he's got stuff everywhere. Johnny Depp's maybe next, it should be. It should be, quote, better to have loved and lost. And Billie Eilish's favorite says, Eilish. Listen, she's right. Songs may come and awards may go, but an inked ass goes on forever. Now, this is not actually a tat, but I just read Ogden Nash's poem for husbands, and maybe this should put be put somewhere. His poem for husbands read, quote, to keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup. Whenever you're wrong, admit it. Whenever you're right, shut up. And, and that's just not for me to say he has it all over everybody. He tells everybody to use it. Now, going from tattoos. The late Rush Limbo, his Palm Beach home is for sale. You might have read about it. He wants it, the people want it, to, for $175 million. It's in Palm Beach. The price is big time, and so is the property. I've been in it. And I brought my late Yorkie, Jazzy Jr., and my still current housekeeper, 
to go there. The house is huge. It's magnificent. It's four acres of ocean, manicured gardens, an Olympic pool, his own putting green, his own gym, his own kitty playroom. It's nice. It's a compound of five buildings. In case you're willing to pay $175 million for this house in Palm Beach, I'm letting you know what it has. He has five buildings on the property, one just for his help. The main shack housing him and his cat, just his cat. I don't know where he put his wife. This main shack was for him and his cat, and it's 24,000 square feet, encircled with a brass banister. Its large second floor overlooked an open first floor. Parked outside, now this is interesting, was his Escalade. It schlepped me down to his home. He brought me down with his G4, which served me Chateaubriand on board. But then when we got home to his big mansion, he offered me champagne. I said no. My housekeeper said no. I think my dog probably also said no. He said, okay. How about a selection of fine wines? Uh-uh, we didn't want it. Then he said, how about canapes, like the kind at $500,000 bar mitzvahs? No. We asked for ginger ale. He summoned a buzzer, and he summoned a staffer in crisp white top and black pants. And the butler announced, we're out of ginger ale. Listen, may the next owner have a live-in shopper. That's all I can tell you. One other thing I think I'd like to mention. The First Amendment protects privacy of one's beliefs. James Madison, the father of our Constitution, endorsed the Ten Commandments, the Ten Amendments, I mean, whose Bill of Rights prevented diminishing any rights our founders thought needed protection. Per Griswold versus Connecticut, promoting any drug, medicinal article, or instrument for preventing conception was ruled unconstitutional and violated right to marital privacy. 1972's Eisenstadt versus Baird held that contraceptive individuals, foam, could not be considered a criminal act, wrote Justice Brennan, the individual, married or single, is free from unwanted governmental intrusion into matters affecting whether to beget a child. The Ninth Amendment says, enumeration of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Overturning Roe and Casey is not because there lacks constitutionally protected right to privacy. Okay, I now have the right to take a two-second break 
and let the station make some money, and then I will be right back, and I have a laundry list of nice people to talk to. Thanks. See you in a few minutes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, so I am speaking to Henry Winkler, who is so hot. I mean, he keeps going on and on and on. Listen, when you sign an autograph, do you sign the funds or do you sign your name? I sign my name, and depending on the generation, I sign uh, one of the animated characters, the Fonz, uh, I signed Gene Cousineau from Barry. <laughs> okay. Did you ever, when you started out, did you ever get a lousy review? I got so many lousy reviews. I did a movie called The One and Only, which was the story of Gorgeous George, the wrestler. Yeah. And a man in Texas wrote, I don't know whether to stand up and scream or set my hair on fire and run out of the theater. <laughs> How bad were you? Why was it that bad? Uh, you know what? I didn't think I was bad enough for him to maul himself. <laughs> okay. Okay. How did you start? We all know about you. We all know you're a big star. How did you start? Well, you know what? I really, really believe. I, one thing that I wrote on a piece of paper is I don't want to be a flash in the pan. I don't want to all of a sudden, like, do something and have it work and then disappear. Yeah. So I thought going to school was very important. And I studied in college and then in graduate school at Yale. Studied what? Uh, drama, and in college, uh, drama and child psychology. Well, how does that connect? I mean, how do you do it the two things? But if I, it, it doesn't connect, but if <laughs> I was not an actor, if I could not earn a living as my dream, then I, I would work exclusively with young people and keep their self-image buoyed. So listen to me, Harry. Henry, I understand all that you're saying. Can you remember your first screen test, what it was like and what it was for? Believe it or not, my very first screen test was for Happy Days. I auditioned for Gary Marshall and Tom Miller and Eddie Milkus. And then they brought me back a week later and um, uh, they plucked my unibrow they combed my hair into a ducktail. They put me in a T-shirt, and I auditioned for Michael Eisner and Barry Diller. Both were powerful executives at ABC. Weren't you scared? Uh, you know what? I was so hellbent 
when I was at Yale, I had the most magnificent teacher. His name was Bobby Lewis. He was a member of the group theater. He was divine. And he said to us over and over again, your job is to get the job. And once you get the job, then think about doing the job. So I, it, I was scared before I walked into the room. And then I was my competitive self kicked into gear. But that's very interesting because the group theater goes back a long time. So he must have been an aged gentleman. And that was when we had so many people actually learning theater. I learned all about it because I did an, uh, the autobiography of the actor's studio, the man who oh, created wow. it. Yeah. So I know these people. That's how you really learned how to be an actor. But this, there's a story that I've heard, but I can't, I can't bring it all back. Tell me a story of how, of your holding bodily fluid for some show. What am I talking about? I, I know the story, but I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. I held bodily fluids for a show. Yo. Oh. I was doing something I'm not very good at. I was doing Young Seward at the Yale Repertory Theater in uh, in a uh, a Shakespearean production, um, and I was killed by uh, I believe it was um, Macbeth, and I had to lie <laughs> on the stage. <laughs> For 20 minutes, motionless, which for a kid who was ADD was really difficult. Yeah. Add to that, I had to pee, and I kept thinking, (laughs) what can I do? I can pee on stage and use my costume to mop it up. I can inch very slowly toward offstage, (laughs) but I held it. I did not take the curtain call. I ran off stage. Oh, and I'm so I have proud never of you, been yes. so happy in my life. Oh my god, that, that that's a wonderful wonderful story. I knew about it, but I didn't know what I knew. So do you do you have a collection of all of your shows you've been in so many? Do you have a box set at home so you can watch yourself you know what? I don't. I uh, I do TiVo uh, performances that are on television. I have very few live performances. Um, and you know what? I never watch myself until a long time later. Because, you know, like people go to see their rushes. They go to see the dailies, the yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what they shot that day. And if I did that... I would then be intimidated and say, well, I just did that. I can't do it again. And so I never really watch myself. You don't watch yourself after you've just done a scene? No, I do not. Unless Bill, uh, right now, uh, Bill uh, Hader says to me, 
I want you to see where the camera is. I want you to see where the other actors are so that you know what the geography is. Otherwise, I do not. Well, what would you have done if you were not an actor? Because you're so obviously meant to be one and you're an extrovert, I'm sure. What would you have done? I would have worked with, I had, um, being dyslexic, I have, um, uh, or had for the longest time, a very low self-esteem. I literally believed everything that the teachers, my parents said to me, I'm stupid, uh, you're not living up to your potential. And I would work exclusively with young people and make sure that no matter what their challenge was, their self-image was uh, strong. That's quite something. That's quite something. Are you not ever intimidated? Am I not intimidated? I'm intimidated. I used to be intimidated my whole life. And then as I got older, I'm now 76 years old. So maybe 10 years ago, maybe yeah. less than 10 years ago. Yeah. All of a sudden, I could not um, deny that I kind of knew what I was doing. That's very interesting that you had the ability to overcome, whether it was dyslexia or anything else. Very few people can overcome it. I know that. Does this give you the strength then? Does this give you the strength that you can overcome the disability? You know what? You don't overcome the disability. What you do is you learn to negotiate it. You don't think to yourself, it is the end of me. You think to yourself, it is part of me. And it is a part that I will be able to gain strength from. So it doesn't hurt your ability to act? It doesn't do any of that? No, what it does is it, I cannot read off the page uh, like in a scene. I have to memorize as I quickly see. as I can. I see. Okay. I can't read and act at the same time. I was kicked out of acting school at Emerson College because I said to the teacher, I'm going to try something brand new. I'm going to act the scene and read it at the same time. He said, not in my class. You're not. <laughs> Get out. Okay. Tell me about Barry. Tell me about Barry. Are you enjoying it? Are you enjoying doing this? And how did you get it? Well, I got it by auditioning twice for Bill Hader and Alec Berg. Uh, there I was intimidated because I now have to make these two comic brilliance, you know, these two unbelievable comic men, I have to make them laugh. Yeah. So that was number one. Number two, I love every minute of my uh, job. Uh, and we love really every do. minute seeing you. We really love you. you. You're a very Thank nice you. man, and you're very kind, you. and you're very loving to talk to. And I thank you for coming on, and I'm going to watch you again and again and again. 
I, you know what? I could not ask for more. And let me tell you something, Cindy. Every time since the beginning of my career, we yeah. have had incredibly wonderful chat. Thank you for talking to me, my friend. I enjoyed you. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Bye, honey. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I'm about to introduce Judge Carol Ammons. She was chief judge of our Brooklyn court. It's a nice little place. He had charmers there on trial like John Gotti, El Chapo, the Mexican drug cartel leader. I'm going to ask Judge Ammon how it works. So, my friend, Judge Carol Ammon, she has been the chief judge of the Brooklyn court. Can you tell me, how did you start? Where did you start? Where did you go to school? Well, I went to the College of William and Mary, and right after I graduated, I went to the University of Virginia Law School, graduated from there, went to work for a corporation for a year and a half, then went to the Justice Department in D.C., moved up to New York, became an assistant United States attorney in the Eastern District of New York. That's the district I'm a judge in now. Um, did that for 12 years, became a magistrate judge for four years, and then was really fortunate, incredibly fortunate, to be uh, nominated and um, confirmed to the U.S. District Court in the Eastern District of New York in 1990. Well, how did that get you to be chief judge of the Brooklyn Court? Well, I was just the next oldest person in line after the chief. The chief it's no great honor here, Judy. The chief judge at the time, um, Ray Deary, was very kind to me. He It's a seven-year term, but he gave up his term early so that I would not be aged out and I could serve as um, chief judge. So that's how I got to be chief judge, and I was chief judge from 2011 to 2016. And... It stopped on your birthday, which is one day before my birthday, as you know. We, we I know. do know that. <laughs> we, we won't mention what birthday it was. No, we're not going to mention any years. But yours is April 23, and mine is April 24. That's right. That's right. Okay, okay, okay. The Brooklyn court gets the biggest, juiciest cases. I mean, El Chapo, Gotti. What happens when you have such an enormous case? First of all, why? The first question, why does the Brooklyn court and not the Manhattan court get these big name cases? Well, I could say it's because we're the best court in the country. Okay, but yeah. Let me, t- okay. let me tell you what some of the real uh, factors are. Yeah. First of all, it's our jurisdiction. We have jurisdiction over crimes occurring in what is called the Eastern District, and that's Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island, and Staten Island. Um, just as we're known for our great restaurants and good beaches, we're also home to some of the best and well-known criminal elements, the head of the five organized crime families and um, such gangs as MS-13 uh, in Central Islip. We also are home to two of the major airports, LaGuardia and JFK, and there's a lot of narcotics trafficking um, through the airports. But I think perhaps the main reason why you see such important cases is um, principally because of our U.S. Attorney's Office. It's one of the premier U.S. Attorney's Offices in the country. 
It's staffed by these incredibly bright young men and women who have the respect of the major law enforcement agencies, ATF, DEA, FBI. These kids know how to investigate crimes and how to bring and try cases. So I think that's the major factor. Finally, I'll give a little pat on the back to my colleagues. The AUSAs and the agents know that when that wheel spins and they get a judge randomly assigned, that their case is going to be assigned to someone who's bright, competent, and fair to both sides. Okay, that all sounds great, but I live in Manhattan, and I think New York City is the capital of the entire world, and so does everyone else. Not Brooklyn, Manhattan. I don't understand, now that I've listened to your impassioned plea i don't understand why it's brooklyn and it's not manhattan i've been working on you cindy for a while to disabuse you about that i know i know i know i know i know the the southern district of course has um you know important cases as well they you know they try a lot of securities cases um you know the financial uh cases there so they have their fair share of uh, important cases as well but I think we've just had a lot of the higher profile cases, as you mentioned, the Gottis, the uh, El Chapos. Um, and, you know, I think a, a lot of it is based on the factors that I've articulated, the smart U.S. attorneys and our jurisdiction. Well, we who are sitting home reading newspapers or, or watching television, we all get scared when names that are so big and so tough and you just can't imagine the enormity of having them in a courtroom. Is there extra security, or what happens when you have these really giant, tough names? They have extra security in the courtroom. We have, you know, extra marshals assigned to the courtroom. And and that's as well, because there are a lot of times large crowds wanting to come see these cases. Um, but we do have extra um, marshals, extra court security officers. But generally, um, unless there's a specific threat after the day is over, the judges don't have any extra security per- well, as, as individuals. What about what about the judge? Is it not? I mean, it, this is stupid. You're a professional and it's a dumb question, but I've never asked this before. Isn't there a little frisson of nervousness, a little, when it's such a big case? Um, I, I think that's um, true. I mean, you are a little bit uh, more nervous, principally because there, uh, there are a lot of things going on at one time. You've got to concern yourself with um, a lot more, a lot of different applications. Often the press will have applications, you know, that they want to sit, sit in the courtroom. There are a lot of um, moving parts when you have a big case like that. So I think it is a little bit uh, more nerve-wracking than your average, you know, importation of cocaine from the airport by a courier case, just because there's so much more going on and you have to be aware of so many different moving parts. Judge Ammon, have you ever, dumb question maybe, but an interesting answer, have you ever screwed up? I mean, you ever got nervous? Did anything ever go wrong in a courtroom? Um. I I wouldn't say that anything went wrong in terms of something being screwed up. I've had things happen that were really kind of threw you off a little bit. I I remember uh, once when um, the jury came back and they had an acquittal. They said the defendant was not guilty. 
And I have sort of a Pavlovian response where I poll the jury. In other words, I ask every juror, is that your verdict? So I'm going down the line and I go, juror number one, is that your verdict? You know, juror number two, is that your verdict? I get to juror number six and juror number six goes, no, judge, that's not my verdict. I think he's guilty. And I go, oh, my dear. <laughs> what do we do now? And, you know, this is trial prep 101. Oh, I'm going to send the jury back to continue their deliberations, oh, which is oh. what I did. And then they, they ultimately came back with a not guilty verdict and all of them agreed. But you know, something always happens in a trial that you never expect. Um, and that's what keeps it interesting. What do you think of trial lawyers? Um, in, they, they differ. Um, I think whether you're talking about a criminal case or a civil case, my experience has been that the criminal lawyers are better trial lawyers. And I think it's because many of the civil cases um, settle and the civil lawyers do not have as much trial experience. So my experience has been that the um, criminal lawyers are the better trial lawyers. And I think it's just because they do it more often. Well, I've been in a few uh, a few courtrooms and I've seen it. I was there with a lot of people and I've seen them do theatrical stuff. You know, they 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 talk to a jury in a different way. They have it's theater. Some of it is theater. Is that not the case? Oh, of course. Of course, particularly when it comes to um, summing up to a, a jury, I have seen very experienced lawyers um, have entirely different personas depending on the composition of the jury and what they perceive the jury wants to hear. And, you know, that's total theater. Um, it's just, you know, they present themselves in a different way. So, it, you know, I always think that good trial lawyers are frustrated actors. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. I think they probably make more than these actors. What is your opinion of our policing now, our problems with bail? I don't, I'm not smart enough to understand all of that. I know you do. What is your theory? Well, um, I'm not, I mean, that's a pretty broad question. Um, in terms of, you know, bail and bail reform, in the federal system, uh, we have, I think, a much better um, system of bail than um, they have in the state system. It's, um, I, I just think it's it's better formulated. Um, and so we don't have quite the same issues, I think, that they have in the state or, you know, the same kind of complaints that they have in the um, state. Policing is a very um, complicated um, area. Um so, you know, we, we will have had civil cases over the years where there are complaints about excessive um, force by the police. But, you know, by and large, in terms of the law enforcement agencies, I think they have a tough job to do. Well, um, how, how much leeway? I know a judge has to go by certain rules, but how much leeway does a judge's background play in sentencing? I mean, if he had a bad background, he's more lenient, or if he's a left-winger or a right-winger. Does that not play into sentencing? Well, I think all of us try very hard um, not to let our backgrounds influence us in, um, in a way that would not 
be proper. In other words, I, I always try and um, try and think to put aside any you know preconceived notions that I may uh, have of individuals and think and try and put out any you know any of those things out of your head. Um, you know, uh, you know, some people are um, are harsher sentencers than other people. But I, I know it's sentencing is the most difficult thing that we do, and I know every single one of my colleagues strives to be as fair as they can in sentencing. And, but, and you know, it's tough. Well, I think you have been very fair and very tough and very good in your answers, and I appreciate your coming on with me. Thank, thank you very well, I've much. I enjoyed it. I look Great forward to seeing to you. you soon. Thank you. Okay, great talking to you. Thanks, Carol. Bye. Thanks. Bye. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. As you know, we have lost the actress Anne Heche. Alongside Anne Heche's tragedy lies another tragedy. Anne Heche lost her life in California, a car crash connected to her in some bizarre circumstance, others just also lost their lives in California, also a car crash, and she is being held responsible. Troubled actress and former Ellen DeGeneres lover, Anne, 53, if you didn't read the paper, was speeding, driving her Mini Cooper under the influence of cocaine. Severely burned, brain dead, comatose after the accident, she was raced to the Grossman Burn Center in Los Angeles and placed on a breathing machine. She is now gone. Here comes the second part of this story. The very same Grossman Burn Center is a large world-famous medical facility considered one of our foremost burn centers. It was established 2007. Its chief operator is its doctor, Peter Grossman. Now here is where it goes murky. Dr. Grossman and his wife live in a $9.5 million house in nearby Hidden Hills, happens to just be on the same street as Full House Lori Lachlan, who, along with her husband, did prison time for buying their daughters into a prestigious university. Back to Anne Heche. Just as friends were saying goodbye to Anne Heche, Dr. Peter Grossman's blonde wife, Rebecca, 58, is now, right now, even as I speak, at this very moment, herself, on trial. Rebecca Grossman, the wife of the Grossman Burn Center's Dr. Peter Grossman, is facing her own trial. Its felony counts. The charges are second-degree murder, and hit-and-run and vehicular manslaughter. Here are the facts allegedly. On September 19th, 
7.10 p.m., Mrs. Grossman's Mercedes, herself at the wheel, was doing 81 miles per hour. That was too fast for the area. The police have stated that Mrs. Grossman was then driving to a house party. At a crossing in what's known as West Lake Village, there exists a three-way intersection. That's along Triunfo Canyon Road and Saddle Mountain Road. A family, a mother, a father, and children were then crossing the street. Mrs. Grossman's car struck and killed two of their little boys, brothers, one age nine, one eleven. Mark, age nine, died at the scene. His brother Jacob, eleven, died hours later at the hospital. Exactly as Anne Haish was being rushed to the Grossman Burn Center, Mrs. Grossman's case was on the docket in a Van Nuys courtroom. She has pled not guilty. The children's agonized parents have repeatedly claimed court proceedings are excessively slow. They question why. There already exist 50,000 signatures on local petitions demanding to know why the wife of the Grossman Burn Center's Dr. Peter Grossman has been allowed to stay out on $2 million bail. They have suggested, the locals, that she, being a socialite, her money, her position, her hospital, her connections, have made this possible. They are worrying she may walk. Rebecca Grossman's attorney, his name is Tony Busby, has stated publicly and has been quoted as saying that his client is being, his exact word is, overcharged, that this is the DA's effort to force her to plea, that her legal team will not allow her to be bullied and that the crosswalk was poorly lit and unguarded. Now that Anne Haish is gone, the trial for Mrs. Grossman is going forward. It's beyond being freaky. That's all I can say. So I will now go to one other thing that I also don't quite understand. There is much I don't understand. Astro-scientists are investigating Mars, Venus, the Moon. They're looking to even set up shop in our newest discovered planet, Umamua. Great idea. Especially since this one we live in is already trashed. Hey, 
New York is now Dodge City. Detroit doesn't even want cars there. Locals born in Baltimore have already left it. Florida is so overrun that now DeSantis and even the alligators want out. The state of Alabama is already closed. Texas is overrun. Opioids a problem in Louisiana. Vegas has dried up. Thunderstorms are drowning Minnesota. Mulch in the ground of South Bend, Indiana, only produced Buttigieg. That's the best they can do. And in Holy Hollywood, multi-wed Mrs. Affleck is looking to remove her body's rice marks from her face. So, while back to work officially after Labor Day, Washington scientists in straitjacket coats are looking to rocket now outer space specimens into the intergalactic beyond. Mazel tov, can I say to them. Lots of luck. If you can't fix up this planet, try another one. So, while back to work officially after Labor Day, Washington scientists in straight jacket lab coats are looking to rocket new outer space specimens into the intergalactic beyond. Hey, what can I tell you? Good idea. And may they stick Palauzi, her hairdresser, her personal accountant, and her husband's arresting officer aboard. Me, I'm going to take a few minutes off. I'm going to say thank you for listening. I'm going to take a few days off in Maine where I shall look at the people there who think flannel is black tie. And then I will be back aboard at WABC next Sunday at 1 o'clock. And I thank all of you for listening. I don't know how you feel about me, but me, I love you. Thank you very much for listening.